Blood is precious. Blood is that life-giving, life-sustaining fluid that is right this very moment going through your heart, your arteries, your veins, and your capillaries. Right this very moment, it is circulating through your body. Blood is the difference between life and death. There's some interesting facts about blood. The average person's blood makes up 8% of their body weight. Women have 4.5 liters of blood on average, men 5.5. Blood stains stuff permanently. I think you know that. That's why the American Indians uh, used to use it as paint. In the early 19th century, it was believed that riding on a carousel would improve your circulation. We all know it makes you dizzy. One in seven people entering hospitals need blood. Someone needs blood every two seconds. And one pint of blood can save three lives. I have seen people bleed, and I have seen people die. But I've never seen anyone bleed to death. You bleed enough and you will die. Now blood, it frightens us. It startles us. It it even grosses us out, right? It should. It is usually supposed to stay in your body. You get a bloody nose, some people just flip out, right? Uh, Someone has to go running for towels. You get a deep cut, someone needs to get bandages. You sever an artery or a limb, a tourniquet, if at all possible. You got to stop the bleeding. Now, this hit home for us very seriously in 1992 when one day we received some very shocking news that Angela's grandfather, who was a farmer in Virginia, bled to death in his fields after a tractor incident, a tractor accident that cut off his leg. And he was trying to get his belt around as a tourniquet around his leg, and it was too late. He bled to death all alone out in that field in Virginia. Blood gives and maintains life. Now, Christians should know this better than anyone. If you look in the New Testament, Christ's blood, you might not realize this, but Christ's blood is mentioned three times more than the cross. It is mentioned five times more than the death of Christ. The blood is important. William Cowper wrote these words, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Now at first glance, our passage for today seems to be a continuation of the awful theme of the total sinfulness, the total depravity, the radical sinfulness of man. It was first seen in Judas' betrayal, Jesus' arrest, Caiaphas' blasphemy and Peter's denial. So it seems to continue on that theme of man's radical sinfulness. You've got the trial before Pilate, you've got Judas's suicide, and all the people calling for Christ's death. But upon closer inspection, what you see is not the fallen nature of man on primary display. The theme of depravity is thankfully overtaken, it is eclipsed, It is overcome by an undercurrent of sovereign grace. 
not the fallen nature of man on primary display. It is the soon-to-be-shed blood that is taking center stage. And it is rightly so. Everything points to the cross. Just like every need we have in life finds its answer in Christ and Him incarnate and crucified, buried and risen and coming again. It is good and right that today we focus on the precious blood of Christ. So take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 27. And stand with me to read God's word. We're going to read verses 1 through 26. Of course, we need to acknowledge our guilt and our sin, but it needs to be in light of something greater. And that something greater on display here is the precious blood of Christ. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge. So that the governor was greatly amazed... Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner named Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of you, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil 
has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray once again that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in your word. Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear your word and open hearts to receive it with gladness and hands and feet that are quick to do your will for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. I want you to see something today about the trials, and I want you to see something today about the blood. I want you to see the truth about the trials of Christ, and I want you to see what Jesus' blood provided. We'll look at those two things. We must never forget that it was our radical sinfulness, our total depravity, our fallenness in Adam that sent Jesus to the cross. It makes sense. We must know the badness of our sin to be able to receive the good news. If you think that your sin is not that bad, you're going to look at the gospel as pretty good news. You're going to look at what Jesus did as all right. Last week I said that we must grasp the seriousness of our radical sinfulness if we are going to see Jesus as our only hope of salvation. I like the way Kevin DeYoung puts it. He said, if you do not know that your sin is serious and significant and sustained, and that you stand guilty before a holy God, you will never cry out to God for deliverance. You will never fall on your knees before the Savior and say, you are all that I have in life and in death, and all I plead is your precious blood. All I have to stand on is your mercy alone, O Lord Jesus. Comfort and save a wretch like me. Those are the words of someone who knows how bad their sin is and knows how good the good news is. But our sinfulness is not the red bullseye of the gospel. The bullseye of the gospel is the grace of God in Christ. The sovereign grace of God seen in Christ and what he has done. It is not our fallen nature that is most striking in this passage, though it is very striking. What is most striking in this passage is the emphasis on Christ's blood. There are direct references to Christ's blood. Verse 4 is called innocent blood. Verse 6, the price that was put on his head was called blood money. The place that was purchased with the money that had been the price of Christ's head was called the field of blood. Pilate claimed that he was innocent of Christ's blood, verse 24. 
And the people all cried out, let his blood be on us and on our children. They didn't realize what they were saying. There are indirect references to Christ's blood in this passage. In verse 20, it speaks of destroying Jesus. In verse 22, they say, let him be crucified. They say it again. In verse 26, Pilate delivers Jesus to be crucified, to be killed, to have his blood shed. Now, when we refer to the blood of Christ, we are referring to his sacrificial death in our place. Christ's shed blood should not scare you. Christ's shed blood should not shock you and, and repulse you. Christ's shed blood should give you hope. Christ's shed blood should give you comfort. Christ's precious blood is the theme of his trials. These people that were wickedly desiring his death, the truth about the trials is seen in these verses. The first thing I want you to see about the truth of the trials is Jesus being on trial in and of itself. Verses 1 and 2, the trial moves from the religious to the civil courts. Jesus is led before the, the Roman governor Pilate. You need a little bit of background on this one. Palestine was under the authority and domination of Rome since 63 BC. Pompey had taken it over, made it a province of Syria. Palestine was known as very turbulent. They were troublemakers in the eyes of Rome, and so Rome stationed the governor to be basically a babysitter, make sure that the peace was kept. And that governor was directly answerable to the emperor. The time of Jesus' death, the Roman emperor was Tiberius, the governor was Pontius Pilate. He held that position from A.D. 26 to A.D. 36. There, you would never say that the relationship between the Jewish leaders and the Roman authorities was one of peace. It was one of animosity. They were enemies. Luke twenty three twelve tells us something interesting about the trials of Jesus. That it made Herod and Pilate friends before they had been enemies. One thing you'd want to know is that Pilate didn't judge all cases. The Jews had a lot of autonomy under Roman rule, but he had the power of review, and the more serious the charge, the more likely it was that he would handle it, even a religious case like this. But in order to succeed in their goal of Christ's death, the Jewish leaders had to bring him to Pilate. So you see Jesus on trial, and the first truth you see is that he was on trial as an innocent man, not guilty. Innocent like Tom Robinson or any that have ever been falsely accused. Now we see Judas, verse 3, the betrayer. He has a change of heart, it seems like. He sees that Jesus was condemned. Once these trials start, pretty much it's going to end in death. You don't usually get out of this kind of a trial under Roman rule. He saw that Jesus was condemned, so he changed his mind. Now, if you're familiar with biblical language, you might be thinking of the Greek word metanoia right now, which means repentance. But you would be wrong because this is not repentance. This is remorse. He is sorry that he got caught. He is sorry that he's a part of this. He changes his mind and he brings back the 30 pieces of silver. He says to them in verse 4, to the priests and the elders, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. The only problem with that confession is he didn't confess it to God. He confessed it to people who had no power to absolve him of that sin. They were complicit in that sin. They were as guilty as him. 
They say, hey, what's that, what's that to do with us? See it yourself. It's like if you buy a used car, and it's a lemon, it's a junker, and you drive it off the lot, and the engine falls out. The wheels fall off. And the guy just goes, oh, bummer. That's a bummer. Well, it's yours now. They're like, hey, bummer, Judas. That's, that's you know, sorry about that. Tries to return the money. The religious leaders won't accept it. And so in a moment of despair, he takes his own life. He hangs himself. He dies. He commits suicide. It's interesting what the chief priests and the, and the elders said after that. Verse 6. They, they say, you know, we'll go ahead and take that money, but um, we can't put it in the treasury. You know, that's, that's against the law. It's amazing. Here's an unjust trial going on and, and they're, they're condemning an innocent man but they're worried about bringing blood money into the treasury you know it's interesting what they're worried about so they take and they buy the potter's field as a burial place for strangers turns out that Judas ends up getting buried there Jesus was innocent Pilate says in Luke twenty three fourteen, I find no guilt in him the guy's innocent Pilate's wife says, don't have anything to do with this righteous man. He's not guilty. He had a clear conscience. He could sleep like a baby. Anyone here remember what it's like to sleep like a baby besides those who can't answer for themselves? It would be awesome to sleep like a baby, right? Clear conscience before God and man. That's Jesus, not guilty, innocent. So that's the first truth about the trials. Jesus was innocent. He was on trial as an innocent man. Well, the second thing you need to see is that he was also devalued. He was devalued. He who should have been treated like royalty, like, an, like a VIP, they should have been rolling out the red carpet for Jesus. He should have been valued like my blue cords and my oatmeal socks and my stuffed doll named Clowny when I was a kid. But he wasn't. He was devalued. He was treated like trash. See, when you're valued, people do things for you. People give you things. It's like uh, on your birthday, they give you a dad's coupon book. And it has a little, little uh, holder on it that says, I love you. Happy 51st, 51st. Wow. Birthday daddy. This is the kind of things you get when you're valued. It says, uh, free head massage. Can't wait for that. Another free head massage, a free foot massage, oh baby, free foot massage, free head massage, it's, it's the best. And when you're valued, they also have fine print in their coupon books. Rules, you may only use one coupon per day, and you must have clean feet, hair, etc. to get a massage. Oh no, 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 it gets better, it gets, it gets better. There are expiration dates on this. The first one expires 1231. I got some time. All right. Valid for only one use. 1210. 1110. And then we get to the really good stuff. Dollar off any massage. That's my kids. One of my five kids gave me this. A dollar off any massage. I got two of those. I got to use them pretty quick, it looks like, or they're going to expire. But see, when you are valued, they give you stuff. Mostly free stuff, but sometimes you have to pay. <laughs> Jesus, though, was treated like throwaway junk. You know when you take out the trash, you throw away the stuff you don't want, right? 
Now, every now and again, you throw away your diamond ring or something. I understand how that works. But most of the time, you throw away the stinky, smelly garbage, the stuff that means nothing to you and that you do not value. You throw it away. Jesus was treated like a toss-away, easily discarded. Blood money, verse 6, it was blood money, and the money that, was, that he was valued at was the value of a common slave, the price of a slave, 30 pieces of silver. No treasure by any means. They bought the field of blood with it. Now, there are two things, and I don't want to take a lot of time on this, but I want to point out two things regarding this this situation where Judas kills himself and also when Matthew says there's a prophecy being fulfilled. So let's talk about Judas killing himself first. You've got to go over to Acts chapter 1 because there, there is an allusion to Judas as well. Acts chapter 1. And starting at verse 15, Peter stands up amongst the church. There's about 120 at that time. It's before the day of Pentecost. And he says, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. And what he's going to go on to say is that someone needs to take his place. And he's going to quote scripture, may his camp become desolate, let there be no one to dwell in it, let another take his office. But there is a parenthesis at verse 18. And here's what it says. Now this man, Judas bought a field with the reward of his wickedness. Now, Matthew 27 says that the, scribe, that, that the, uh, the Jewish leaders bought the field. Now, there's not really any problem with this. By the way, these, these passages are easily reconciled, but there's different accounts. The first thing you just point out is that he, in essence, bought the farm. He bought the field because it was his money that they used. But then it says that falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. You see the graphic uh, example that we're seeing, a very gross graphic example of all your guts being poured out. Now, Matthew 27 says that he hanged himself. Acts 1 says he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. What Acts 1 does not say is that he died. It doesn't say how he died. So you put these together and he hanged himself. So he's in a tree. And in those days, the the body would decompose very quickly and in the hot sun and it would fall. Picture this. It falls out of the tree and he falls head face first and, and, and bursts open in the middle and all his guts gush out. Now you go back to Matthew 27 and... Matthew, and I love how Matthew does this, he finds fulfillment in the word of God, the picture of Jesus' death, and all these settings, he finds God's word being fulfilled. And here he says, verse 8, called the field of blood to this day, verse 9, that was fulfilled what has been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Now the words here seem to be Zechariah's words from Zechariah chapter 13. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom the price had been set by some of the sons of Israel. They gave him to the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now here's what you've got to understand. He's saying it's Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a bigger stature, stature uh, prophet than Zechariah. So Jeremiah is like the heading of that category of prophets. So saying that Jeremiah said it is quite 
quite normal and fine and it also is probably a reference to jeremiah chapter 19 verses 1 through 13 you can look up that later it refers to the shedding of blood the breaking of the potter's flask and some other things but what what you would want to say here is that matthew is not seeing here simply a fulfillment of individual minute prophecies but rather the development of old testament patterns of rejection of the messiah They've culminated now in the events of the trial of Jesus. And the biggest point that Matthew is making is that God's word once again is fulfilled in Christ. And the truth about the trials is that Jesus was innocent and Jesus was devalued. The third truth of the trials that I'll point out to you is that Jesus was hated. He was hated. They were so angry they wanted to kill Jesus. Like Cain with his brother Abel. Enmity, animosity, indifference, no love. Here's this innocent man that is being treated more shamefully than anyone had ever been treated. And he's treated hatefully by Pilate. Not only by Pilate, but by Herod as well. What you wouldn't know just by looking at this passage is that there are actually two trials before Pilate. And in the middle of those two trials, a trial before Herod. So verses 1 and 2 bring him to Pilate. Kind of the split screen now is verses 3 through 10. Judas hanging himself while that's going on. And then verse 11 through 14 is the first instance of Jesus before Pilate. Jesus stands before the governor and he is asked directly if he claims to be the king of the Jews. And Jesus basically says, well, this is what you've said. But he, get, he remains silent, and Pilate is surprised. No one acts like this in front of a man that powerful. Pilate has the power here, at least he thinks he does, amongst the people he does, and he is floored that Jesus won't speak to him. So what does he do? Well, what, any, what any great uh, Roman governor would do? Get someone else to do it. So he sends them to, to Herod, Look at Luke chapter 23. It says in verse 6 that when Pilate um, asked whether he was a Galilean, he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction. Oh, good. Let's give, him, let's give this problem to somebody else. So we send him over to Herod, who was in Jerusalem at that time. Remember, it was the time of the Passover. When Herod sees Jesus, he's really happy. And not because he wanted to worship Jesus, but because he wanted to do a magic trick, basically. He had long desired to see Jesus, but he had heard about him and was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. So Jesus is not answering Herod either. Verse 10, the chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, hatefully spewing out false accusations against Jesus. Verse 11 says, Herod with his soldiers treated Jesus with contempt and mocked him. They put clothing really nice clothing on him and sent him back to Pilate and that's where it says that that day Herod and Pilate who were enemies before became really good friends so Pilate interviews Jesus then he sends him to Herod Herod sends him back to Pilate and that's what you see in verses 15 through 26 now what Pilate is going to do now is offer to release Jesus according to the local custom at that time of the religious um, festivities. He knows that there's a guy named Barabbas who was sentenced to death, awaiting crucifixion. He was a notorious prisoner. 
So it gambles on the crowd releasing um, Jesus instead. Now, Pilate is motivated not just by getting this thing taken care of, but by a message from his wife. Now, his wife's name is Procula, and she sends a message to him. She basically protests what's going on and says, this guy is innocent, don't have anything to do with him. I'm very troubled over this. So he, he gets the message while he's sitting on the, the judgment seat, literally the Bema seat. It's the judge's seat, the tribunal seat, where it was a platform on, on which a, a Roman magistrate would sit flanked by his counselors and he would administer, get this, justice. Now what is going on here is the worst injustice ever perpetrated. Justice, yeah, right. No justice here. The main reason for Pilate delaying the verdict was what his wife had told him was going on, so he continues to play with the will of the crowd. And so as a weak ruler that he is, he says this, so what do you guys want me to do? What do you want me? It's like the quarterback going into the huddle and going, I have no idea what we should do. What play do you want to run? <laughs> They're not wanting that answer. So what do you guys want to do? Who would you like me to release for you, Jesus or Barabbas? And by asking that question, he shows he has already rejected the claims of Jesus. He puts the two on the same level. They're both common criminals. Take the one on the right, take the one on the left. He's one of Christ's enemies. The crowd shouts, let him be crucified. So Pilate delivers the verdict. The moment is tense. The crowd is about to get whipped into a frenzy. They're going to have a riot. Pilate has had enough, and he takes and hands Jesus over to be crucified. And he takes and washes his hands with water in front of them, because in those days, you do that, you're saying, I'm innocent. I've done nothing wrong. The people cry out, let his blood be upon us and our children. Literally, we will take full responsibility for this. Jesus' death is set in first century Jewish stone at this point. It's on us, they say. Let him be destroyed, let him be crucified. Pilate's saying, hey, I'm innocent here. But he delivers him to be crucified. He's just as guilty. Jesus was hated. Jesus was hated without a cause. That's what the scriptures say. Let me tell you something. You either love Jesus or you hate Jesus. The Doobie brothers were wrong. He isn't just all right. Okay? You either love Jesus or you hate Jesus. There is no middle ground. You either love him and say he is the incarnate God, the one who was crucified and buried and risen and coming again, or you hate him. You don't say he's just all right or he's okay, or I just don't know what I'm going to do about Jesus. You either love him or you hate him. The truth about the trials is that Jesus was innocent. He was devalued and he was hated. So what did his blood provide? Let's move to looking at what his blood provided. Let's look at Christ's blood work for us. You know, you go to the doctor and you get blood taken and they... They work up your blood work, right? Well, let's look at Jesus' blood work for us. What did Jesus do in shedding his blood? What did it provide? Now, there are a lot of significant words. I'm going to give you a bunch of them. 
But by no means is this the last word on this subject. People like Stephen Charnock in the 1600s wrote 600,000 words about the blood of Christ. These words I give you, I'll give you three words. And they, they, they take us from the temple to the marketplace to the court of law. First of all, in the temple, a temple word, the word satisfaction. Jesus' blood provided satisfaction. What goes along with those words is our words like propitiation, which I'm sure you haven't said a lot in, in everyday conversation recently, but every Christian should understand what propitiation is. Words like forgiveness and, and purification as well. I'll give you a three-word definition for propitiation. Wrath removing sacrifice. Two if you want to count the hyphen. Wrath, wrath removing sacrifice. It means to appease or pacify anger. And let me just say, God's anger is a lot different than yours and mine. I was yelling at the TV yesterday because my favorite team was losing a game. You would have thought it was the end of the world. I had family members coming in saying, are you okay? We keep hearing certain words in this room and we wonder it. And they're very loud. Are you okay? Like, quit bugging me. It's bad. It's the end of the world. It's not the end of the world. Some of you don't care. But all I would say is this. So you don't get worked up about a football game. You get worked up about something. And every one of us has some kind of issue with anger. Whether it's quiet anger or whether it's raging but Jesus' anger, God's anger, is poles apart from ours. What provokes our anger never provokes God's. And what provokes his anger seldom provokes ours. Why is propitiation necessary? It's because sin arouses the wrath of God. The wrath of God, what is that? It is his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all its forms and manifestations. The gospel begins with the outspoken claim that there is nothing we can do. Nothing we could say. Nothing we can offer or even contribute to compensate for our sins or turn away God's anger. The good news is that the initiative was taken by God himself in sheer mercy and grace. In propitiation, God takes his own initiative to appease his own righteous anger by bearing it in his own self and his own son when he took our place and died for us. Romans 3.25 says we have propitiation by his blood. 1 John 1.7 says the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. 1 John 2 says we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. 1 John 4 says here is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's simple. Mankind is alienated by God, from, excuse me, from God by sin. God is alienated from man by wrath. It is the substitutionary death of Christ in that death that sin is overcome and wrath is averted so that God can look on you without displeasure and you can look on God without fear. Let me just say that I know too many Christians 
who think that God is always angry at them. If you are in Christ, if you believe in Christ, if you are trusting in the finished work of Christ, God, hear this well, God is not angry at you anymore. All the wrath was taken at the cross. That is incentive to want to to worship Him and please Him with, with everything, every ounce of your being. But God is not angry with you anymore. The sin has been paid for. The wrath has been satisfied. There has been propitiation and forgiveness has been offered. Forgiveness has been granted. What comes along with that is purification from your sins. Hebrews 9.22 says that in the old covenant, almost everything was purified with blood. And in the new, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. 1 Peter 1 says, knowing that you were not ransomed, and ransom is a good word here, ransomed, freed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. There's all sorts of perishable things we deal with on a daily basis, corruptible things, milk and eggs and butter and cheese and ice cream and meat and things that can spoil and, and perish. But it says that we have been bought with the precious blood of Christ. Precious means valued. Precious means treasured. Precious means important. Precious means very costly. It means respected and honored and held dear. God was pleased to crush Christ. Revelation 1.5 says he freed us from our sins by his blood. The Bible presents the blood of Christ not just as our source of pardon, but are also our source of purity. It cleanses not only your conscience, but your heart. It shapes your relationship with God and with others. We all like to drink purified water, don't we? Well, I like to drink tap water personally, but purified water, it's good, you know? And we like to wash our hands and become pure, and we, we take like three seconds and wash our hands and say we're clean, right? But your kids tell you. Do you know if a dentist puts his hands in your mouth, he is required to scrub his hands for at least three minutes really, really well. So you have less chance of getting infected by the dentist, I guess. But Christ's blood cleanses your soul. Nothing can cleanse your soul but Christ's shed blood. Hebrews 9 says, Our conscience is cleansed by his blood. Pilate's wasn't. Pilate had dirty hands. He, he washes his hands in water and says, I'm innocent of this man's blood. He was as dirty as anyone. Psalm 24 says, Who can be in the presence of God? Who can ascend God's holy hill? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. You only get clean hands and a pure heart because God took his own initiative to appease his own righteous anger by bearing it in his own self and his own son when he took our place and died for us. Satisfaction is what has been provided by Christ's blood. What else? Number two, substitution. It's a related word. Substitution. You can think of it this way. Satisfaction through substitution. It's a marketplace term. It's connected to words like redemption and freedom and peace. Acts 20, 28 says, We have been purchased by His blood. Ephesians 1.7 says we have redemption through his blood. 1 Peter 1.18 says you were ransomed by his blood. 
Revelation 5.9 says to Jesus, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Ephesians 2.13 says, We who were far away from him have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It's Christ's blood that is the, the red bullseye of the gospel. The blood of Christ. you got to remember about this is that you are no longer a slave to sin if you are in Christ. Christians will always say, oh, I'm just, I'm just um, dragged down by this sin and these sins that I keep on committing all the time. You've got to know that you are no longer a slave to sin. You are a son. You are a daughter. You are valued by God. You are now to be a slave to righteousness. Romans 5.8 We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the standing of a Christian because in Colossians 1.20 it says he made peace through the blood of his cross. Peace by his blood. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. The essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. The substitutionary atonement brought us peace. We love to talk about peace in the world. Peace on earth. That's all I want is peace on earth. You know, ask people, what do you want? World peace. world loves the idea of peace. Let's have a peace summit. Let's have a peace treaty. Let's give out peace prizes. Hey, since 1901, we've been giving out Nobel Peace Prizes. And a lot of people have gotten them. Theodore Roosevelt got one. Albert Schweitzer got one. The Red Cross. Desmond Tutu. Mother Teresa. Barack Obama. All these people getting peace prizes. There will be no peace. There will be no world peace until sin is taken out of the way. As long as sin remains, there will not be peace. Peace is the absence of hostility, the establishment of tranquility, and that is what Christ's substitutionary death on the cross buys for every Christian blood-bought bride of Christ. True peace. Blood of Christ is of immeasurable worth. The blood of, the blood of Christ provides satisfaction and substitution. And I'll, I'll share one more with you. Salvation. A big word, salvation for God's glory and our good. This brings us to the court of law and the words like justification and faith and perseverance. Romans 5, 9 says we've been justified by his blood. But there's plenty of people that say, I don't want to have anything to do with the blood of Christ. In November 1993, about 2,000 people gathered in Minneapolis for a theological conference. And it wasn't for a desiring conference, desiring God conference. It had nothing, it was as far away from that as you could get. No, this was called reimagining God. And it was exactly what its name suggested. They claimed that the idea of Jesus' atonement was the ultimate in child abuse and the model of human child abuse that depicted God as an abusive parent. They condemned the idea of Christ's atonement as an abusive patriarchal system with the comment, I don't think we need folks hanging on crosses, dripping blood, and weird stuff. Too many people today would agree with those attendees to them the story of the cross is just you know weird stuff but like it or not there stands at the very heart of Christianity the cross the blood of Christ 
cross is how we find out what God is like. God forgives Christians the penalty due to us because of our sins, because Christ took our place by living the life we should have lived and dying the death that we deserved to die because of our sins. We're justified by His blood. Verse Peter 1, we are elect through His blood. Ephesians 2, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, not of, not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast. There's not one shred of anything we can do to get ourselves in right standing with God. The practical power of Christ's blood in your life isn't just for the removal of sin and guilt. It's not just Formula 409 for Christians. Positive realities that God brings about of peace and freedom and spiritual growth in your life. It doesn't simply take away death. It gives you life. Maintains your life. You need the atonement not just to save your soul initially, but to nourish and to grow your soul in the long run. Till Christ returns or you go to be with Him, whichever comes first. What you need to know is that if you are in Christ, you have a refuge you are safe in Jesus. How many Christians do I know who think, wow, God is angry with me and I'm a slave to sin and I just don't have any security. No, God is no longer angry with you because of the satisfaction that Christ's blood paid for. You are no longer a slave to sin because of the substitution that took place and you are safe in Jesus because of the salvation that He has paid for and granted to you. He has secured your life. He even has secured your perseverance in Christ because you are loved. He who was hated showed you his love. He who was treated as guilty for us makes you right in his sight. He who was devalued says you are of great value to me. We've been purchased by his blood we have, we have propitiation by His blood. We have been justified by His blood. We have redemption through His blood. We have been brought near by His blood. We have peace through His blood. Our conscience is cleaned by His blood. We are sanctified through His blood. We are elect through His blood. We are ransomed by His blood. We have been set free from sin by His blood. By His blood. A true appreciation of Christ's shed blood should lead you to something it must it must cause you to to aspire to something greater than yourself you you re you review the blood of christ shed for you and it will lead you it must lead you to worship god with your whole heart with every ounce of your being you will want to worship him and you will want to serve Him with every ounce of energy that God grants to you every day of your life. And you will say, you know what? Christ died for my sins in my place. I no longer want to live for myself. I want to please Him in everything I do. I want to please Him. All because of what He has done. Lord God, we thank You that You are the one who holds us together. We thank You, Lord, that we are not our own in Christ. We were bought with a price, therefore we are called to glorify you with our bodies till, till you come back. 
Lord, we thank you for Jesus who went to the cross. We thank you for Jesus whose life was innocent and devalued and hated. Thank you, Jesus, that you stood and took the abuse sinlessly in perfect righteousness. That we, on the other hand, were guilty and vile and puffed up and self-absorbed. It was only by your sheer sovereign grace and mercy and love that drove you to give your precious blood for the life of the world. We thank you for that precious life-giving benefit for all who believe. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.